Good morning. I need someone. Luke, thank you. Echoes my son's words when he was three. He would just look at us sometimes and just say, I need something. I'd say, what? He said, I don't know. I just need something. I think sometimes our prayers are like that to the Lord. I need something. Good morning. How are you all? Could I ask you all to stand just for one moment? I, I'm not sorry. And uh, I just wonder if we could pray. You know, every time we come to the Word, um, I believe in my heart that we don't just come here to... Uh, Chris Jungles came up and gave me a word during the... Well, had a word for the church. And uh, then Jen pretty much kind of said what he was saying in my ear. So, you know how the Holy Spirit works. It's almost like there's one spirit. And, um, and, you know, I said, hey, she stole it from you, you know. But, you know, so just some of what him and I were just talking about in the worship, just briefly, was that we don't just come here built around a sermon. I'd really hope that. We come here to see him and to know him and to be touched by him and to be changed by him and to be in his presence. In the Old Testament, the Bible says they encamped around the, the tabernacle. They built everything that they did around the presence of God, not around a message. So whenever we come to his word, hello, I I trust, I said, sorry, I went dead there for a second. I just trust that, that the power and the authority of his word brings lasting change. But if we just go through the motions, it actually won't. So I wonder if we can just open our heart just for a moment. Father, we thank you that your word has all authority and all power. We thank you that you are bigger than the Bible. But yet, Jesus, you are the word made flesh. Lord, we we approach your word with reverence. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will confirm your word with power. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your presence. And we open our hearts to the spirit of wisdom and revelation to bring freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, good morning all. Good welcome back to those who are online. And um, if you could turn in your Bible to the book of Galatians. We've been in a series on Galatians. I think this is week three or four. And, um, you know, even though we've been in a series on Galatians, I'm just going to jump right in for the sake of time. We uh, took a detour last week to Romans, Romans chapter 5. So we were on a journey. If you've ever gone on a journey with children, and then you've got to take a detour multiple times, more times than you want to. And sometimes I feel like sometimes the way the Lord speaks to me is like that. We were in Galatians, but we just have to take a detour to Romans 5. So I'm going to quickly read that again, and then we'll get back to, uh, to Galatians. But in Romans 5, we, uh, you know the term splitting the atom? I started talking about this last week, about splitting the atoms. Last Adam, which is Christ, and first Adam, the Adam and Eve. And every person on the earth is, the, the phrase I use is the federal headship. Federal because it's beyond boundaries, it's beyond borders, it's not controlled by, by any sort of boundaries or borders. But every person on the earth is under the federal headship of either first Adam or last Adam. And that's what the Bible is basically saying in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. 
So let's quickly read that. I know I touched on this last week. Romans 5, and I didn't give this to them at the back, so I'm not sure if it'll come up. But it says, nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Because Adam was the only one, if we're talking about grace and law in, in the book of Galatians, Galatians, Adam was the only one who had received the law until Moses. Do not eat of the tree. Everyone from Adam to Moses had no law. And the Bible says they were not being held accountable for their sin because there was no law. They had a moral law, in other words, a conscience. They're born with just some sense of wrong and right. Right and wrong, and I don't think I have to feel good, I shouldn't do that. But no one ever said, don't do this, don't do that. The only one who'd ever received that was Adam, and he didn't do it. One rule. Don't do that. I want to do that. So when he broke that, the Bible says that everyone from Adam to Moses, when he did that, death came into the earth and reigned, in a sense, as a system, as a power over the earth. And so everyone from Adam to Moses, even though death still reigned because it came through Adam's sin, none of them sinned according to the likeness of Adam or to, according to how Adam sinned, which was a direct disobedience when you know you've been told, don't do it. So they still had sin. They still had inherent sin. They still did wrong things. They still went against their conscience. They still did things they knew they shouldn't have. But no one had come and said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. So even though they sinned, they didn't do it like Adam. Does that make sense? But the free gift, verse 14, I'll read it again. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him, being talking about Christ, who was to come. But the free gift, that's eternal life, is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense, the one man's sin, that's Adam, many died, that we were now born in our sin and transgression, much more the grace of God and the gift, which is eternal life, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, will abound to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. In other words, the gift of salvation is not the same as the one who, what came through Adam. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation and death. But the free gift which came from all the offenses committed since then actually resulted in justification because Jesus lived up to the law, in a sense, for you. So it says here, for if by one man's offense a death reigned, and I know we covered this last week, but it is not our personal sin that makes us sinners. We are born sinners because of the offense of the one man, not because of something you've done. So you're born with inherent natural sin. And so somebody said it this way, Adam was the first person to be born again. It's a bad phrase, but he was born from death to life. Sorry, from life to death. So I don't like the phrase born because Jesus coined that phrase. But Adam was the first person to be spiritually changed. But he was changed from life, sinlessness, to death. And then everyone who came through his, through that race, through the race of mankind, was born dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. And Jesus comes along, which is 1 Corinthians 15, calls him the last Adam. The last, the last one who will make all things new. And he says, you need to be born again. Because when you were born physically on the earth, you're born with a sin nature because of the sin of the one man. And it has to be a man. It has to be a human. It has to be mankind that provides a substitutionary sacrifice. 
Otherwise, it's not substitutionary sacrifice. It has to be a sacrifice for man, by man. Otherwise, the integrity of God will not be, it will be corrupted. So Jesus said, I'll become like you. <laughs> Romans 8, I'll become like you. I'll become a made in the likeness of human flesh, the word made flesh, and I will die so that you can be born and go back. You went from life to death. I need to make sure, because you're my bride and I love you, that you can go from death back to life. Inside. And the, the entire human race, the entire human race is in one of two, under two families, two headships. You are either under last Adam, with the same disease, Billy Graham used to call it of sin, controlling everything you do, the master of sin, Romans 6, or you are under the federal headship of Jesus Christ, who puts a power in you to overcome that. Then that stunning verse, that incredible verse that parents don't like sometimes because it can be used and taken the wrong way, which is Romans 5, 20, 21. The law was added so that the trespass or that sin may increase. People ask, well, then why was the law added? Because there was a saying in the Old Testament, more Torah, more life. In other words, when people are doing bad things, put more law on them, judge them more, be more harsh, give them just... Add, just heap it over. More, you must be better. That'll, that'll help. That'll deal with this issue of sin inside. And then Paul comes along as a Pharisee, as the greatest teacher on the earth at that time. I believe he was one of the greatest. Said, actually, hey guys, we were wrong. The law wasn't added to deal with this issue. The law wasn't added to make us better. The law was actually added to make people sin more. Imagine the offense. Imagine just people. What? No way. This guy's crazy. Says that the law was not added so that trespass, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So just as in sin, just as sin reigned in death, death on the earth, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he, the Bible says that when the law was added, sin, it was added so that sin would get worse. It doesn't mean this way, I was doing this one bad thing one time a day, then the law came, now I'm doing it ten times a day. It doesn't mean worse, more as in from one to ten. It means that sin became in the likeness of Adam. They were just following their conscience, they weren't sure, and so God said, all right, you want to know my righteous requirement? Here it is. Boom. And he gives the, the law, the Torah, the law of Moses. And they suddenly realized, uh-oh, the righteous requirement to be in right standing with God, we thought it was like, just live a good life. Like the message you hear today, if I just live a good life. We thought, you know, I made some mistakes, but I have a good heart. We thought it was like that, just follow what you feel. And God says, yeah, no, it's actually like this high. And they're like, uh-oh. So suddenly, sin increased. Why? Because even now they've been told, like Adam, don't do this. Now they were told, don't do this, 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 613 laws. Now they've been told, and guess what? There was no empowerment to change it. So now they've been told, like Adam was told, they just kept doing it. So there's no empowerment in the law. So sin, in a sense, got worse because now they know what they're doing is wrong and they're doing it anyway. Does that make sense? So 
the question was, how can a holy God do this? How could a holy God bring something that will make sin increase? And of course, Jewish, cause Jewish people on the day of Paul to say, does God want people to sin more? No, a holy God can add something to make law increase because he was after something much more important. He was after exposing a condition of death in, in mankind. He said, I'm exposing a condition of death, a disease within you that you cannot deal with. And I'm going to send my son. And unless you understand that there is one way, which is offensive to the world right now, many ways, unless you can understand that only Jesus Christ will live a sinless life, die on a cross, be raised to life, be ascended into heaven, sit at the right hand of the Father, and take his righteousness, perfection, and put it on you. It's called substitution or imputation. He will impute it upon you. Only he can do that. But you have to see that you can do it. So he takes Israel, he uses them in a sense as an example. My dad read it this morning and puts law on them to show the rest of the world because he desires all men to be saved. To show the rest of the world only this way. Only this way. Does that make sense? So, he was after exposing in people a condition of death so that they would fall to their knees and cry, Salvation from a divine rescuer, Jesus Christ. The gospel is actually good news. Yeah? It's become good advice. Live like this, live like this, live like this. It used to be good news. There was a battle between life and death, life won. If you believe in him, he will put that life in you and on you. And the way God sees you will be as if you've lived the life I lived for you. That's good news. Hello. Okay, it's just you and me, Dad. There's lots of room in heaven. Come with us. No, that was a joke. That was a joke. Bad clay. So, Galatians 2. Go to Galatians 2, please. I'm going to start reading. So I, I went to Romans 5 because it's the spine of the gospel. And unless we can understand, everything ties in to some degree to Romans 5, the federal headship of first. Of, of Adam or Jesus Christ, but it helps us understand a little bit of what we're dealing with in Galatians, grace versus law, and I'm going to read most of the Galatians 2 today, hopefully we get through the whole chapter, but I want to speak to you about guarding against legalism, religious hypocrisy, and the empowerment of grace. These three things. Guarding against legalism, it is the natural default setting within a, within a person to go back to legalism. It's just that, it's like, you know that, that in the old keyboards, you used to have that, that thing that said default? Does someone remember that, please? I'm from Africa, we were a bit behind, but it wasn't so bad, you know. And you used to push default and it used to take you back. That's like the default setting in person, back to legalism. So let's talk about that. Galatians 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, Paul is now still speaking about his proof of apostleship and his journey and what happened after he got saved. 
This that we're about to read in Galatians 2 is like a behind-the-scenes look and in Acts chapter 15 when Paul took things to the Jerusalem council where all the apostles of Christ were and he went there and they were dealing with some difficult doctrinal questions. Yeah, we see kind of like a behind-the-scene of what was happening there. It says, And after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and I also took Titus with me and I went up by revelation. And communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who came in, to, came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they, may bring, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission to these false brethren who came in to bring in legalistic things. We did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Verse 6, But from those who seemed to be something, you like the way he talks about the apostles, those who seemed to be something, because he hadn't been there before. Those who seem to be something, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. That's not disrespect. He's just come out of a hierarchical system where if you're a high priest and then if you're a rabbi and there's this pomp and ceremony. And he's just broken that whole system. And God puts every person on the same playing level across the face of the earth. Are you under last Adam, a first Adam? Or Jesus. And he says, Who they were makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. They didn't change his message. They didn't change the truth that Christ had revealed to him. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, that's another word of talking about Gentiles, had been committed to me as the gospel for the Jews or for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, to the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, you know, pillars of the church, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. You know, you've heard of they gave me the left hand of fellowship, which means get out. That's where it comes from. They gave me the right hand of fellowship, means they accepted him, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews, or they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So, guarding against legalism. Someone wrote this. A definition of legalism is attempting to achieve righteousness with, with God by observing any set of rules. Instead of by belief. Another definition was this, adding any other requirement to the requirement which God has stated to achieving righteousness with him. So you will add, what is the requirement that God has put on the earth to achieve righteousness with him? Well, it tells us in Romans, it says this in Romans 4, if you believe in him, that's Christ, who delivered Jesus, uh, that's God, who delivered Jesus our Lord to death for our offenses and raised him again from the dead for our justification, you are righteous. That's it. 
The Bible says in, the, in Galatians, which we'll read maybe next week in Galatians 3, the gospel was preached in advance to Abraham. I want you to consider that for a moment. Abraham was not a Jewish man. The Hebrew people were born through him. He, he started it. He was a, a man actually of modern-day Iraq. He was the Ur of the Chaldeans. He was worshipping the sun and the moon and the stars. And God appears to Abraham and says, Hey, guess what? Um, I'm, I'm gonna, if you believe in me, you're going to be righteous. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. He just tells him, I'm going to bless you. I'm the Lord. And, he, and Abraham goes, I believe you. He goes, you're righteous. And the Bible says the gospel was preached in advance to Abraham, who through who belief in him was made righteous. Any other requirement other than belief in Jesus Christ and leaning on his finished work, any other requirement, that's what, the first week we talked about Jesus plus. They, they say, yes, Jesus plus you need to do this, plus any other requirement other than what Christ has done will take you into legalism in order to, if you do it, in order to be right with God. If you believe in the Lord, if you believe in his death and resurrection on your behalf, you are right with God. And when God looks at you, he sees you, this is so offensive, he sees you as if you lived the life of his son. Please hear me. When I started seeing this stuff, it, it was offensive to me. Because I know my issues, and I know my my sin and I know what I struggle with and I desperately know I don't deserve to be seen that way but until you learn to rest in the fact that that won't change you will not be free I've met people that I've started to show them in this and I literally people raised in church and I started to show them and I'll never forget this one young lady used to work in the office years ago I showed her and she said that can't be right that can't be true it can't be that good The gospel is good news. No church, no preacher, no ruler, no king, no one and nothing should ever add anything to the requirement that God has put, which is his son. That's it. Now, somehow legalism keeps slipping into the church. It just keeps happening. It's present in every church. It's present in this church. Because there's people in this church. And it's a default setting. So when Paul says, I went to Jerusalem, he says, I went in response. The NIV says, I went in response to a revelation. Right there, you see a different thing. In the Old Testament, everything was dictated by law. Paul says, I went in response. God spoke to me, so I had to go to, I had to, go to Jerusalem. Everything in the New Testament is living by the life of the Spirit. We have to understand that. I, I respond to my Father. I went in response to a, to a revelation. The solution we often give to this, actually, let me talk about it this way. <sighs> Imagine you were Paul, trying to communicate this to Jewish people who for thousands of years have lived morning to night, dictated to by law. Now he says, now we're called to live in response, in a relational response to the Father. Through Jesus, we can live in a relational response. They say, uh, so uh, how do you do that? Because everything for thousands of years has been dictated. Do this, 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 don't do this. And wake up every morning to think about what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And Christians live like that and they shouldn't. So, 
The solution we give to this, unintentionally, is to create, and it's maybe not the best word, boundaries. I know we need boundaries. Don't freak out. <laughs> to create boundaries, to create standards, to create boxes, because it makes us feel safer. So we create standards. We need to live like this. We need to live like this. And we cannot create standards that we set up in order to live up to. And they're done with a good heart. Please hear me. And often there's a lot of truth to them, whatever they may be. But through them, legalism creeps back in over and over. I'll give you an example. It says, yeah, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, where all the apostles are, and he's now writing to the Galatian churches, because these Judaizers, these people who were saying Jesus plus, had come in, and they were saying, if you want to be saved, you actually have to be circumcised like the Old Testament, you have to do this and do this, and so these people, so Paul's writing to them saying, don't listen to them, when I went to Jerusalem, Titus was with me, who was a, he wasn't circumcised, so he didn't make the grade, and they didn't even compel him to be circumcised. They're not telling you the truth. They're not representing what's happening in Jerusalem correctly. Don't listen to them. And those people are sitting there. That's an interesting meeting. So he says this. So what do we do? We hear that and we go, we make this law, this standard. No one ever must be circumcised again. Set it in stone. Why? Because it gives us a measure no one ever again, because if you do this, you're making Christ sacrifice vain, and we want people to be free. This is the new standard. And we make a law. And we cannot possibly see how this can entrap people in the future. So we make a standard. That's Acts chapter 15. Well, Acts chapter 16, Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him. <laughs> from one spiritual son to another. Now he takes Timothy and circumcises him. Why? Because it's got nothing to do with circumcision. It's got to do with the motive or the spirit, the heart behind it. Which was, you must do this in order to be right with. And it creeps into our hearts when we make mistakes, when we mess up, which we all do. Some of you have today. And you must do this and that in order to be right with. So Paul now says, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Why was that a big deal? Because the Judaizers were saying, so then he goes to Timothy, the very next chapter. Actually, let me read it to you. It says here, then he, that's Paul, he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He spoke well of, he was spoke well of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Where's Lystra and Iconium and Derby? In the provinces of Galatia. So Paul goes from this Jerusalem council to Galatia. Galatians? And there was a young man that was saved from the first time Paul went through there in signs, wonders, and miracles, which we covered the first week, where all those churches were planted in power. Paul goes back there. This now, this young disciple, is passionate for God and he says hey Timothy I want you to travel with me and according to Jewish law when one parent was Jewish and the other one was Gentile if one was Jewish he should have been circumcised as a baby 
And so he's saying, you should have been circumcised as a baby. So we're going to an area that is very strongly Jewish. They're not even going to hear me if you're not circumcised. So for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, let's just take care of that. It has nothing to do with your salvation. Think about it, men. Hello. He's not a baby. Let's do that for the sake of the gospel. So where we go, there's no hindrance to the message of the gospel. Because they'll get all caught up in this. But if we've now, for the sake of freedom, made a law. No one ever circumcised again. Now the gospel will be hindered over here. Because we want it like this. The nature of man keeps doing that. <laughs> keeps doing that. We set up things. We set up structures and systems. And then we try to live up to those things that we ourselves set up. We keep creating law and legalism opportunities for the, dead of, for the enemy to put people against people. So, but here, he says in Galatians, when we went here, he says, we wouldn't even submit to this crazy legalistic thing with Titus, not even for one hour. We wouldn't even let them have a second of legalism with the circumcision stuff. But then a little while later, I know we're circumcised this guy. Why? Both of them were for the sake of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here it was to protect the purity of righteousness by Christ. Here it was to advance and open a door to see the gospel go to. They wouldn't have even been able to see it if that was an issue. So how free are you? Are you free enough just to obey something that man has said? Or you're free enough to see Jesus throughout. <laughs> Be my friend. See, Paul goes to the Jerusalem, it says, to make sure that his gospel was not in vain. This doesn't mean that he's afraid that the gospel he was preaching was wrong. You know what it actually means in the context? It means he, d he wanted to make sure that the gospel he preached didn't, and the gospel that was being preached in Jerusalem, they didn't land in, now you have a Jewish camp and a Gentile camp. It actually had to do with segregation of people. Oh, the golden calf. Let's touch it. He said, if the gospel we're preaching lands with the segregation of people, a Jewish gospel, a Gentile gospel, we failed. Because Jesus came for all men. Look at what's happening in the church today. You have this group, that group, that group, that group, that group. Look what's happening in the world today. This color, that color, that group, that group, that group. <laughs> Jesus says no to all of that. He says no to all of that. And it comes from Jesus plus issues that we add. In the church, it comes from us trying to demand behavior. 
If you're a Christian, you must look like, be like, act like. When, outcome, when the behavioral outcomes are standard that we set, we offer the enemy an opportunity to bring legalism and law and thereby remove empowerment. We have to understand that. We have to let people be free. The new covenant is life by the spirit of the spirit. Obedience is always important for the believer. Discipline is always important for the believer. But not external standards set by men. Add nothing to the requirement for justification than what God has said, which is Jesus Christ and his life on your behalf. That's it. I put my faith in him and I stand in that. And then it's life in the spirit. It's now the Holy Spirit has come. He's going to live in my heart. Now he's going to awaken things. He's going to give me a power to overcome stuff I couldn't overcome before. But guess what? It's different for every person. So the New Testament gives us three guidelines as to how to live this new covenant life by the Spirit. Do not quench. Do not grieve. Do not blaspheme. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. Do not blaspheme the Spirit. And I could, we could spend a whole month there. What are those things? What do they look like? But the bottom line is this. They are relationally driven things, not standards and rules. You cannot set that to a list. They're relationally driven. Allow the Holy Spirit to convict the heart of a person and he's convicting this person about something else and he's convicting this person about something else and then we take our conviction because we've had a revelation. And I went in response to revelation every revelation we get from the spirit we should respond to so we've had a revelation and we respond and we see through the deception of sin in some area and then we see someone else who's living in that sin and we say you shouldn't do that you're so stupid don't you know what you're doing stupid person you should be doing this we can't give the empowerment only the holy spirit can he wasn't convicting them Rather teach them, how do you hear his voice? How do you get to know the Lord? How do you get revelation from scripture? What has Jesus done? How does God see you? How good is God? How magnificent is God? How do you get to know this God? How can I understand? Teach them to have relationship. Because only he can empower. Do we need discipline? Do we need structures? Yes, but don't, please hear me, administrators, don't create systems that box and control relational truth. Because it will eventually bring death, even though it started for freedom's sake. All Christian disciplines, say, he's not happy. All, please hear me, all Christian disciplines are there to steward a relationship more than a doctrine. All Christian disciplines are there to steward a relationship far more than a doctrine. <sighs> Let's go. Let me just carry on reading. Galatians 2, go to verse 6. Those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism. Can I read? Let's go to verse 10. They desired that we should remember the poor, 
the very thing which I was eager to do. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, so now they've gone from Jerusalem to Antioch, think about this, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For certain, this is great Apostle Peter. For certain men, for before certain men came from James, so these Judaizers and these people came from James and they twisted even Peter, um, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. In other words, the circumcision group, the, Ju the Judaizers, the Jesus plus. And the rest of the Jews, how's this? Some of these people are sitting there. I'm going to keep reminding you. Because sometimes truth needs to come and it may be offensive, but it needs to come. Like what's happening with Aladdin schools. It says here, and the rest of the Jews who also played the hypocrite, imagine saying it of great Peter, who also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Barnabas was Paul's traveling companion. Maybe he was involved in reading the letter. It's like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles, in other words, he, would live, he was free from the law and he was living as a Gentile, obviously worshiping and loving the Lord, but not as the Jews, why do you compile Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature, in other words, by birth, by, birth, by race, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, here it is, no flesh, no one in, no human, no flesh shall be justified. So here you see the trap of religious hypocrisy. And the first thing we see is this wonderful, how can I say, it says in verse 7 that, uh, um, that God, the gospel to the circumcised was given to Peter, to the Jews. God was using him powerfully and the gospel to the, to the Gentiles was given to Paul. There was an apostleship that God had given him powerfully. What do you start to see? Firstly, you see this a wonderful thing that... Paul sees and recognizes when he goes to communicate the gospel. He sees he needs team. For years it's just been him. And he goes and he sees, I see the Spirit of God working in Peter powerfully and effectively to deliver the gospel, the truth of Christ to those who are Jewish. And he says, in the same way God is working in me powerfully to deliver the truth to those who were Gentiles or Greeks. Now what's an amazing truth? It's not just that we need team and that we need one another and that is different. What is it? Who opened the door to the Gentiles for the gospel? Peter. Not Paul. Paul was the one who's saying, God has called me to the Gentiles, but Peter opened the door with Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. Peter had the key to open the door so the gospel could go to the Gentiles because sometimes, friends, please hear me, God has called us to open a door into a space or into a room that we, all, we will never occupy. We have to understand that. Sometimes God has put keys in a sense in our hands to open doors into regions, into areas, into businesses, into countries. And we open doors and we think, 
well, that's for me. Sometimes we open doors that have nothing to do with us. It's not for us. It's not about us. It's got nothing to do with us. Paul is occupying a room that, of a door that Peter opened, not Paul. What's the point? There are people around you that may be sitting next to you that the door that has always remained shut to you because we have to learn to recognize God in others and they hold a key for something that you're facing. And the trap of religious hypocrisy is what? It always puts people against people by focusing on each other's flaws. And we could never imagine that this person could actually bring breakthrough in an area that I need. Because do you know what they're doing? Do you know what their life is like? God's like, yeah, but I've given them the key to the breakthrough you're looking for. Yeah, Peter, uh, Paul says that, but then at the same time says, but he was wrong about this. So I confronted him. We are not called, please hear me, to live the Christian life just me and Jesus. People say that I love Jesus at just these church, they're weird. And sometimes they are. We are not called to live the Christian life, me and Jesus. We are called to live within a family that is focused on kingdom advancement more than personal destiny. Far more than personal destiny. Today the focus is all on what is my calling? What is my destiny? The New Testament says this. Your destiny is wrapped up in the family of God and Christ's purposes on the earth. Forget about yourself. What is he doing? Get involved with that. And the gifting and the stuff I've put inside of you, that'll come up. If you fo and it'll be necessary and you'll open doors for many people. When you focus on what is me, what is mine, it's a different form. It looks good because you're pursuing the Lord, but it's a trap. And it will lead to legalism, a whole different type of legalism. Religious hypocrisy always comes to exalt man or a group. Peter, Paul, Bill Johnson, John Piper. Pick one, your spiritual hero. There should be honor where there is honor. There should be respect where there is respect, Romans 13. But when we look to men or to man or to people instead of God, that's where legalism will enter. That's why Paul confronted Peter, because he was such an influence. And he saw that he had been led into this Judaizer's hypocrisy through insecurity. Uh-oh, people have come over from Jerusalem. They've been sent from James. There is talking about the law. I better impress them. So I'm going to become like a Jew when they're around. But when they leave, I'll go back to being free. What does that mean? It just means Peter wasn't actually free fully inside yet. Great Peter. That should encourage you. Because God used Peter powerfully. And look what happened. Religious hypocrisy will always come to exalt a man, to exalt a group. Look at the sects that we have in church. 
and the enemy will use it to make sure that people are focused on the flaws within another person, within another group, instead of living in response to the Father. I went to Jerusalem in response to a revelation. Can I speak to you very briefly about the empowerment of grace? Let's read Galatians 2. Just continue verse 15. We left off in 14. We who are Jewish, Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But... If while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. And he says that because they were departing from the Jewish law when they got saved, and all of a sudden, all the dictates of the law, that was an outward exterior behavior. Most of them just were like, well, we don't have to do that stuff anymore. And all sorts of things started coming out of those people's hearts. So it looks like they got saved, they got worse. Also, if you just mixed with Gentiles and like were a part of a Gentile group, you were considered a sinner because the whole law was external and not us but not them, us but not them. So they're saying, is now Jesus a minister of sin? Is he serving humanity? with an antidote to sin that's not working because it looks like they're getting worse. And they weren't. I mean, obviously God was moving powerfully. And, but am I making sense? So what does he say? Is Christ the minister of sin? Certainly not. For I, if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. That's the big key. That I might live to God, not to myself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, not the old nature, meaning in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. People tell me the grace of God is for when you get saved, but then like, that's for baby Christians, and then you move into... No, I do never set aside the grace of God. It will always be and always remain the greatest empowerer. Learning to lean on what he's done. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes to the law then Christ died from vain. You see, when he says for if I build again those things which I destroyed I make myself a transgressor. I read that when I got saved because I studied this book and I read that, okay, so I used to be an addict. I'm not anymore because now I'm a good person. So when I become a Christian and I go back into, or I make a mistake, or I do something that I used to struggle with and I just make a mistake, I'm now building those things which I've destroyed. But that's actually not the context. I'm now being bad again. The context is actually the law and grace. He's saying, if you build the things again, that which I've destroyed, if you go back to relying on the law and legalism and outward behavior and works as a means to get yourself back into right standing with God, You've misunderstood the whole gospel. Because you're still in right standing with God. And you're still righteous in his sight. Even though you're struggling. 
as Colossians says, you, you are complete in him. That's enough. So the whole journey from the moment I get saved to the moment I die here on the earth, the whole journey, you are complete in him. And this whole journey, you will know that someone understands grace. When they mess up, what do you do? Do you run from or do you run towards him? Do you try to fix it yourself or do you go back and say, Lord, show me again? Can I tell you a, two quick little stories and I'll read you something. Best way to explain this. When I led the youth, we obviously dealt with pornography and all the stuff that people don't like to talk about. And we were amazed because it was girls and boys that would come to us. And so I put everything in place that I could. You know, I had a five-step plan. It was quite good, I thought. And you, know, and, and, you know, do this and be accountable and have software and phone a person. And all that stuff is great. None of the, some of those people got free for a little while. None of them stayed free. Not one. Because we taught them, that no matter what you do, we love you the same. And boy, they tested it. And the Lord would tell me, literally, tell me in dreams, prophetically, he would say, this young child is doing this. And I would write it down in a little book that I kept. Jen and Carly, they know they were there. And I wouldn't say a word. But I'd wait for the Lord to bring it up in their heart. They would be there. They would worship. They, but I knew what was going on behind the scenes. And then they'd come by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They would come to me a month later, six months later. Oh, I've been doing all these things. I'm like, yeah, I know. And I would show them in my phone. I've learned for six months. You didn't treat me any different. No. Because we see you through his eyes. I tell you, it seems crazy. But when those people changed, it lasted. They're still free. Versus... This is how you do it. This is what you must do. This is. So when I came to the pornography issue, I said to this group of young men that I met, I said, I want you to never do that again. Obviously, that's my desire, but you probably will. The freedom will come. What do you do straight away after you've done it? I said, I want you to sit up and say, I'm still righteous. I'm still loved. I'm still this. And every one of them... They came back to me within like a week. They said, we did that thing you said, and it didn't feel, it felt horrible. I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> like, it just felt like, uh, like we're praying, and like we just, I'm like, uh-huh. They're like, so do you have something else? Nope, do it again. Do it again. And every time they would look at something or do something, they would, they would stop and pray, Lord, this is, I've been set free from sin. Not so that I can be so free that I can, I've been set free. I've been set free. This is not who I am. I'm righteous in your sight. I'm loved by you. I have unconditional favor. I have this. Uh, every single one who actually did that are still free today. It takes longer, but it lasts because it's God's way. I met with my sister. I asked if I could share, share this with you. Years ago, before I even moved here, I was in ministry. She had, in a sense, been in some form of ministry here in this church when she was, just got saved and I think she was a deacon or something. 
She came back to South Africa, and her life changed a bit, and she started to live a bit of her old life. And, and we were good at being in the world. You know, when a person who's experienced the world at a great level, when they fall, it's not like oh, I had a bad thought. It's like I did all of this. You know, and so she went back into some of that, and I heard about it. I didn't say anything, and I was studying grace. So I got angry at her. I was like, she knows better. What is she doing? Even though, I, you know, two years before that, I was the same. And the Lord said, I'm driving on the way to the restaurant. She, she wants to meet with me. And I'm upset with her. I'm angry. And the Lord says to me, how about you try my way? So clear in my mind. How about you try my way? Grace. So I said, oh, I don't want to do that. You know? So we went there and she starts to, and I noticed when she was speaking to me, she was shaking. Because she, she knew me. She knew I'd get upset, I'd get angry. So she's shaking. She's afraid of my reaction. Fathers, think about what I'm saying. And she poured, and the stuff she did was like, what, you know? And then she's like, done. She's told me everything. And I just looked at her and I said, it's okay. I love you. Yeah. We said, none of that stuff means anything to me. I love you, my sister. No matter what you do, you're still my sister. It's okay. I tell you, she cried. <laughs> Actually, people came up to me like I was doing something horrible to her. <laughs> they were like, what are you, you breaking up with her? I'm like, she's my sister, you know? <laughs> but she cried so heavily, I just sat there for like 20 minutes. So some people will say, that's the message of the world today. They say, there's a, there's a message out there which is this, but it's false. Whatever people do, it's wonderful. It's not wonderful, it's still sin. They still need freedom, they still need truth. But I can't change that person. But it doesn't mean that I want them to continue in it. And she got free. Can I read you something? And then we'll be done. Years ago, the Lord spoke to me about four schools in the New Testament, which I won't get into now. The school of grace, the school of the spirit, the school of anointing, and the school of man. And I had many prophetic people say I should write a book. So I wrote some, some stuff down, and I just want to read it to you. It's about a page long. Can you bear with me? And this I wrote as an introduction to the book that I wanted to write. And I never have, so I still just have this. And um, it's about the school of grace. Titus 2 says, The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, grace, it teaches us, teaches us, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of, our glory, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, calls Jesus God, just notice that, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Not doing what's good because I know it's right, but I want to do that. No, inside change. So I found that I went through stages. And this one I'm about to read you is not exhaustive. It's a lot. It's going to be like a fire hose. <laughs> this is a five-year process for me. And I called them stages. First stage I called 
feeling free. So I'm just going to read. It's easier for me and probably better for you because it'll go faster. A person receives a revelation of grace and they feel they can do whatever they want in a sense. And this won't be for every person. And some people, some of it will be, yes, that's me, others not. They can do whatever they want. And in a sense, you experience the first true experience of unconditional love looking forward. We have all experienced unconditional love of God in hindsight. You know, when you do something, you look back and man, man, he was with me all the way. But grace teaches us the unconditional love of God looking forward, that it's never going to change. But now we experience looking forward, and it can be offensive and even scandalous to many. Others often get nervous at some of the things a person like this says, those who are new to grace, and it feels extreme and shocking. Yet through it all, we know that we have an advocate with the Father. Then I went into a different place, and this is all scripture. I've got scriptures. I'll give this to those who want it. And the question started to rise in my heart, what is freedom? As a person is doing whatever they want in the name of grace, something doesn't feel right in the heart. And we realize that grace has brought a flashlight to the state of my heart, and it exposes what's actually inside. Questions arise. Why is this stuff in my heart? Why don't I feel free anymore if I think that freedom is doing whatever I want? We now know that it's not about being a good little Christian outwardly, but yet something doesn't seem right. This basic truth starts to seep in. This truth. True freedom does not mean to do whatever you want or what you feel like. Freedom is being free from who you were freed from which is sin. So I am free, but parts of my heart are not yet living in that freedom. But I know Romans 6 says this, for sin shall not have dominion over you. How? For you are not under law, but under grace. So I still know I must not apply law to this problem. Then I move to a different phase. Deep calls to deep. The revealed state of our own heart, as we're wrestling with that, we can see more clearly now, and often we have seen that the truth, we have seen the truth about the love of Jesus for us. And we could realize that we don't love him like we thought we did. It happened to, to me. We love him because of what he's given us. We love him because of his sacrifice for us. But to love him where it costs me. To love him sacrificially. Not yet. Not yet, Lord. This starts a process of building a real and genuine personal relationship with Jesus that will have personal history. Here the scriptures will become deeply sought for truth and there's a wrestle that will develop in the heart and the mind of this person. But we are still freer than before because we are still certain of God's great grace. But they're wrestling. Does this make sense to anybody? Then, I, you come to the conviction that changes. Conviction begins to develop inside us. It's a conviction by the Holy Spirit. And we are standing now on a truth of a deeper understanding of the gospel. But we discover that we are living a self-centered life. Oh, that was an awful discovery for me. Because I was so good at being a Christian. And then I was like, man, I'm a selfish person. Everything I'm doing in the name of God is still for me, 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 me. We are so wrapped around ourselves and what we can or can't do and our gifting and other giftings and, and we are still dealing with the old man that was crucified. However, 
It is no longer a place of condemnation. As we now see through the lens of God's great grace, which means the Lord will actually now be able to show us certain issues in our heart without us hearing the accuser or condemnation. Sometimes the Lord can't reveal something in you because of what it will do to you. And it no longer feels like failure, but an excitement to move past what hinders your walk with the Lord, because I love Him. And we are starting to genuinely know and love the Lord. And the Lord is changing our desires to become eager to do what is good. And we experience a shift, a loss of friends, a loss of relationships maybe, a loss of reputation. We experience a detachment from the world. It can be very unsettling to those around us. And we will often wonder ourselves and be asked if we are being too extreme. But passion has begun to burn within my heart. That wasn't there before. Almost done. You guys still good? Then I move to this one. Becoming undone. Grace has actually started making us gracious now. When I first had a revelation of grace, I would destroy people and try and show them that they need to understand this thing. And the Lord said to me, maybe you should allow grace to make you gracious. It's like, oh, well that's hard. So grace starts making us gracious and we start to see other people through his lens, not our own. And the grace of God will start affecting your personal and practical relationships. The gospel becomes intoxicating to you. We want to show Jesus to other people. Our personal interactions with others have changed. It's through his grace. And what used to frustrate us and make us angry doesn't seem to do so anymore. Although it's all, it'll be greatly reduced. Then, next phase, love and intimacy. I am his and he is mine. Love and intimacy with Jesus becomes real. Grace has taught us to say no to sin far easier now. It's not outward behavior. We can identify deception and the stranger's voice, John 14. The stranger's voice, John 10, sorry. We can identify that from a distance, from afar. We don't carry guilt anymore when that thought comes. As we now know, we no longer take responsibility for thoughts and temptations that don't originate from us. They are more easily diagnosed now. And the choice to not dwell on them seems within reach and seems much easier to overcome them. The self-centered nature, the old nature, has less on us. Its voice has gone quiet. We realize that's not who we were born to be. And our spirit man begins to rule on a more consistent basis. And we now know what does it mean to live by the spirit, to walk by the spirit. We see the deception of sin. We know that we were purchased at a great price, so I don't sell so cheap. Grace has taught us to say no to sin. But it's a school, it's not a moment. It's a school. Some people will stay there for the rest of their life, but for some, they go further. We be passionate devotion. We become aware of responsibility within this kingdom. His heart has been revealed, and no matter the cost, we will obey Jesus, not out of fear and not out of legalism, because now we love him and we know him. And we desire to reveal the Father and to see Jesus exalted in our lives and in our, in our city. And Servanthood for us is no longer from a servant's mind. 
His desires have become your desires. There has been a death inside of us, a good one. There has been a separation from the world. What used to fascinate us no longer carries any interest. And the question is, can we allow others to respond to the Holy Spirit as we once did? Do we pray for them or have we become law to them? That's the question. Can we stand? Jesus, we thank you for your great grace. Your great grace, the unmerited favor of your life that is given to us as if we lived your life and yet we did not. As we continue in this book, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that we will realize that great truth. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ liveth in me. Lord, set us free, set us free for freedom's sake so that the world can see the power of God displayed again in your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Thank you. See you soon. Um, we actually have... Can you... Uh, okay, sorry. I'm distracted. Um, I, I've got something wrong. We're going to have a team up here for those who want prayer, for anything. They love to pray for people. God does awesome things. If you want prayer, come up here. For the rest of you, if you're new, there's a package for you on the way out by the door. But bless you and love you.